the path doesn't have to be straight. We have enough information that we can value courage. You're listening to the We Get Real AF podcast, exploring the future with trailblazing women and girls in emerging tech, XR, AI, and futurism. Science and technology are reshaping our world at lightning speed. Engage in conversations that'll spark your curiosity and challenge what you thought possible. Inventing tomorrow starts now. And here are your hosts, Vanessa Alava and Sue Robinson. Welcome to the We Get Real AF podcast. Today, we're taking you into the future and to the far reaches of outer space. You know, since the beginning of time, humans have gazed up at the night sky and wondered what's out there and how do we fit in? Ancient Egyptians used the sky to predict the flooding of the Nile River, and the Chinese drew the first known map of the stars in 700 AD. Fast forward to today, and our technology has changed a lot, but our curiosity hasn't. Women are shaping the future of space exploration, and today we're talking with an incredibly accomplished woman who's helping humanity reach Mars. Christina Hernandez is an aerospace engineer with NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, and she's taking us inside the Mars rover mission, which will launch in July. Welcome, Christina. Welcome. Yay. Thanks for having me, ladies. Yeah, so excited to have you. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to NASA. Yeah, um, okay. So like you said, I'm Christina. I am a part of what we're calling the surface development team of our Mars 2020, now called uh, Perseverance rover. And really what, what my role is, is I get to work with science instruments. So science instruments are the tools that this robotic geologist known as Percy, is going to take with her to Mars and, you know, just go and, you know, use these tools to help us understand more about, you know, how did Mars come to be or what what are the different things we need to know before we send astronauts and other future explorers um, over to the red planet. And so my job is to kind of be a jack of all trades and with one particular science instrument, Pixel, which is an X-ray spectrometer that's going to help us understand um, the chemistry of rocks at a really fine scale using all this great uh, technology. And, you know, make sure we have everything in place so that this science instrument, this tool can operate um, as it needs to once it gets to Mars and, you know, give the scientists the data that they need to make these fantastic conclusions in a few years. And so, you know, I am by trade an aerospace engineer. So I went to the California Polytechnic State University of San Luis Obispo here in California. And, you know, it was a school that was really focused on learn by doing, meaning get your hands dirty, fail, you know, try it again, and it's going to be really hard. And, you know, it was a great experience in the sense that you know, this hands-on learning really helped solidify my understanding of engineering. Um, that being said, you know, you know, as a, a woman, as a Latina, you know, going to college, going into an environment where you don't necessarily look like the majority can be difficult, right? And and not necessarily, you know, because of you know, targeted uh, stuff towards me, but just, you know, you just don't feel welcomed. You don't feel a part of it. And so it was actually in college that, you know, I really had to do a lot of, you know, 
self-care and I needed to really think about why do I want to be an engineer? Like, why? Like, why do I want to go to space? Why do I, why am I putting myself through all of this? And so I took it way back, right, to when I was a a little girl, right? When I was a little girl, I loved reading. I was never a tinker, right? If you talk to most engineers, they're like, oh, I, I love taking apart the remote. My dad would yell at me, whatever. I loved to read, right? I loved the library and I still love reading because it was a way of exploring just by turning the page. And I remember going to the library and picking up books about like Saturn and Mars and black holes. And it just really got me going. I wanted to know, well, how did they take this picture? How do they know this information? Like, how do I become a part of this? And my passion really stemmed from there. And so in college, right, when I kind of felt that I lost my way um, because of obstacles that you can't predict when you decide to be a rocket scientist when you're five years old, you know, it, I, I, you take it back to the fundamentals. And for me, it was, you know, this idea, this innate curiosity and passion for the beauty of space. And so, you know, that really helped you know, put some fire uh, behind me. And, you know, I really started to hit the books. I kind of found my groove. I found a group of people who could really support me, which is really important. Um, And I ended up getting a job at NASA JPL, which was a dream uh, because never in a million years, right, you know, all these all these things about self-doubt and all of that, they really manifest themselves. But when you actually get it. It's just like, wow, like I'm here. Like, so now let's do something. Right. And so I wanted to be on the biggest, baddest mission that JPL had to offer. And in my mind, that was a Mars mission. And so uh, here I am today and I've been at JPL for seven years. I've worked on Mars 2020 for five years, uh, which when you think about it, that's that's a long time. Um, but yeah, no, I'm really excited for the next phase of the mission. We're launching in July. Um, everything's going according to plan, which is really exciting. And, you know, come February, we will be hopefully on the surface of Mars and, and ready to get to work. And how far does that rover, does Percy have to travel to get to Mars in July? I know that the distance changes with the rotation of the planets, but how yeah. far... It, well, so it, it's easier to understand it from like a time perspective. So it takes about six to seven months uh, for the rover to arrive at Mars. And that's actually the shortest time. So we've optimized how long it takes to get to Mars. Um, and that's why we only get what we call launch windows or these opportunities every two years. So when they say you're launching in July, you better be ready. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a couple of questions. One. The love of reading. I love the passion in your voice. Like you, you have like this magical twinkle in your, in the timbre of your voice and you talk about reading. Um, so obviously, you know, that stems from probably a lot of different things in your life, but I have to ask this because I come from, uh, I'm a Latina as well and a Hispanic background. I come from a very, um, protective like overprotective family like my mom was like the hoverer did you have that to where like a book really was your sense of adventure of like escape like I can explore the things that I'm maybe not able to do like the person next door like the neighbor like my neighbors were able to actually go outside and play I learned how to rollerblade in my living room so (laughs) let's just take that back so I'm just curious so that that's hilarious because I do have a few so 
to take it back, so my parents uh, were born in Mexico, but they they grew up here, right? So they went to high school here, and they were fortunate enough to to go to college. So I feel with them, they were a little bit, you know, awakened to the idea of like, you know, we had it really hard. We had overbearing parents. We want our kid, you know, to be able to explore. That being said, culture is culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you when you say you learn to rollerblade in your living room, same here. I didn't <laughs> learn how to ride a bike until we moved into a better neighborhood, which was I think I was like fourteen years old when I learned to ride a bike. And I mean, so it's kind of like it's there. There was that sense of uh, protection, and um, overbearing would have been strong. Um, and when my mom hears this, she's going to like, give me the look, but (laughs) same here. So for me, right. I think what it was different is my parents, because they were truly like the first generation, you know, they were going to college while they had me while I was little. And so like, it was this, I grew up in a learning environment and I grew up, uh, you know, sometimes it feels like my parents were my best friends, right? I grew up in an environment where like I was their little buddy, I was their study buddy. And so in that sense, I think that's where reading really comes into play because that's what I would do while they were, you know, doing their thing. Were you a math science kid? I'm just curious if you were always a math science kid or or how would you describe your interest? So I was the goody two shoes kid who always raised their hand and always did their homework early. Like I just loved school, right? I I was a true geek in every sense of the word and math and science in, um, like in eighth grade, middle school, it would, it came easy to me, but in high school and college, I think a lot of the times when I reflect back, I think because of other outside obstacles, I actually got, quote, really bad at it. And so I, I think it was, I was always a math and science person, uh, but, you know, sometimes external factors told me I wasn't. And But I knew math and science, right? That's how you become an engineer. That's how you go to Mars. And so you have to power through. Uh, but realistically, like my best subject was literature, because as you can tell, I love reading. <laughs> so I'm really curious. I, we we kind of jumped you. You gave this like beautiful introduction about yourself and you're like, yeah, and I landed this job at, you know, NASA, like, you know, no big deal. But no, how did you land that job at NASA? Because that is like a huge accomplishment. And it, like when we even did our introductory phone call, I told you like you ha- like your job sounds like the dream job. It sounds like you go in, you have fun, you build things and you do experiments and like then you just go home and go back and do it all over again and say, oh, look, I had another idea last night, you know and you get to like execute it. So how did that dream job land in your lap and how did you, or how did you work toward it? Yeah, I, so it really came with understanding why I wanted to work for NASA because when I talk about my job, you know, I, I even hear it myself. I hear this, you know, excitement, this passion, this this certainty that right now I am exactly where I need to be in life, right? And so I wanted to manifest that when I talked to anybody who worked at NASA. And so at Cal Poly, right, I I struggled a lot my first few years. I even got on academic probation um, because of, you know, math and science related classes. And when I found that spark, finally, you know, I I didn't let it go. I, I needed I dedicated everything I could 
to my craft, right? And I remember uh, talking to one of my professors who ended up becoming my graduate um, advisor. She was like, have you thought about going to grad school? And I was like, hold, hold on, like, <laughs> I've been barely passing my classes. I'm finally getting my groove and you want me to do what, right? It was, uh, she pushed me to say, look, you, you've got it. She's like, you know, I'll be your mentor and, you know, we'll do this thesis working with NASA Johnson. She's like, I think you can do it. And I, you know, I trusted her and I did it. And a year later, I'm in line um, at the career fair, uh, NASA JPL was there and I showed them my resume and I'll never forget the words that they said because all of the sacrifice, you know, that's where it paid off. He said, I have never seen a resume more like anybody who needed to work with NASA. This is a resume of one of our employees. And to me, I was like, all right, like, where's my offer? <laughs> because it's like, you know, like really like that, that, that's exactly what I wanted. And it, it was, it's hard work. It's sacrifice. Like I, I can't tell you how many times I said no to going out with my friends. Right. And it's like, you turn 21 in college, you want to go partying. And it's like, no, it, it was, you know, I have to study. I have to, you know, be the last one to leave the library. It was, it was nothing but hard work, but it was hard work that was guided by passion. It, it was the only way to be able to walk in a room and try and convince somebody that I deserved a job there. So it, it, I think at the end of the day, though, right, it was, you know, it was grad school because that was the that was the challenge that people at NASA saw that I had gone through. So I think um, the point you made about having somebody, a professor at a key moment in your life, believe in you and see yeah. something in you that you weren't able to see it yourself in that moment is so crucial. And I have a daughter who's in college right now, and she takes really ambitious classes too. And I think it's so important um, when they get tough and you start to question yourself to... Yeah have to dig deep, right? And to just find that spark that you're talking about to keep going. Was it that professor who gave you that spark? Or was there another spark in you that made you decide, I really, really want to work at NASA? And I'm just going to keep pushing on. Sometimes they're the lighter fuel, uh, right? They're the fuel where it's like you had a little, a little, little spark that you didn't know. And once they put that lighter fluid on, it's like, boom, like now you have this wildfire inside of you. And, and that that rings very true even to moments now, you know, working at JPL, there have always been, you know, and it's always, you know, this, you know, amazing woman that I can project myself in her shoes. And she's the one who's saying, no, look, you can do it. Like, just, just do it. So it's, that's very true. Love that. So what does the day-to-day -day of a systems engineer at the lab look like? Like you get into work and, you know, just take us through a day and you've been working on this like amazing mission. So the last five years and it's about to come to fruition, like it's about to go out into, into the universe. So talk, walk us through that. So my day-to-day, -day, um, it changes every single week, every single month. Um, it's, it's a, it, the project is in phases. So when I first started working on this project, it was very much a paper design. How do we want the rover to look? What do we want it to do? What type of science do we want it to do? What are the different tools and science instruments that we have to bring to the table? So 
at that point, my job was very much, you know, go to meetings, uh, get on the whiteboard, talk to different types of subject matter experts, and just try and get a feel and how to put this thing together. And then, you know, as the years go on, you get to the part of the mission, which really is my favorite part of the mission. It's when you cut metal, right? It's when you finally say, I have a design and it works and now we want to build it. This is what we're committing to. And the reason why I like that part of the mission is because every day something goes wrong. Every day something breaks. Every day you realize that something isn't functioning as you designed on paper. And so it really, you know, it's fun because you're solving problems and you're fighting fires. And uh, sometimes I feel like a systems engineer is really like a jack of all trades, right? Master of none, right? You, Your job is to kind of take a step back and understand from a mechanical engineering perspective, from a you know flight software coding perspective, and from an electrical engineering perspective, how does this all come together? How are they how are they interacting with each other? And so at that's that was my favorite part, but it was also the most stressful part of the mission, right? I it was I was working sixty hour uh, sixty hours a week. I was working second shifts, third shifts. And it was all to just try and get it built. And then from there, there's probably even the more stressful phase, which is called ATLO. So this is called assembly test and launch operation. So all missions go through this, but it's the part where everybody has built their thing, right? So in my case, you know, we built the science instruments and now we're going to put them on the rover. We're going to install them and integrate them. And so the rover becomes, you know, the Perseverance rover. It's like when you look at pictures of the JPL clean room, that's ATLO, right? You see it all coming together. And that's the most grueling part because you've been focusing this entire time on this one thing, understanding this one thing. And now your job is to understand the rover at a higher level. And the stakes are high because you're testing the thing that is going to go to Mars. You cannot mess up, right? And people still mess up, right? We're human. And it's you're on call 24-7 because at any point in time, if something goes wrong with your box, you better pick up the phone because you're going to have to help them figure out what's going on. And so it was so stressful and so exhausting. Um, and looking back, it was the part that would make me do it all over again, right? And it, and it's kind of, it's the question of, you know, how much, you know, what is work-life balance? Well, to be honest, I didn't have work-life balance, right? I was so fortunate to have a support system that allowed me to put more emphasis on work than everything else. And, you know, without that, I would not have been able to do this. And, you know, our jobs are so... Um, trying to find the right word it's the word that's coming is is draining right because it's like you are interacting with people from with different perspectives and you know as a systems engineer your job is to bring people together so that you can come up with the best idea and solution and it takes it all out of you right it's like you're giving it your all your blood sweat your tears i can't tell you how many times i've cried on this project <laughs> because it's just like you know it's it's tough right um and it it really stretches you and i love the fact that i'm talking to you guys today because as i'm you know listening to myself it's you know you become a better person you be 
become a better engineer after going through an obstacle like this. And so the day to day, it, you know, it could be whatever. It could be you're talking to Florida, you're going to Florida um, to go do your test on the flight vehicle, or, you know, you're in meetings with, you know, people, you know, giving their opinions and you're trying to kind of make sense of it all. And it's just, sometimes it's chaos, but it's also making sense of the chaos for a better product. And I was reading about some of the tests that you were talking about, and it sounds like the perseverance has to be tested for everything from extreme temperatures to um, loud, incredibly loud uh, jet engine size noises to shaking. Can you walk us through all the things that the perseverance might go through between here and Mars that you guys have to prepare for? Yeah, absolutely. So the first one is launch, which is the most grueling environment. You are strapped on top of an Atlas V rocket and you are subjected to acoustic, dynamic and vibration environments. And it's, you know, it's it's the shake uh, part of it. And so what we do is for all the small pieces that will make up the rover, we test those. We, we call it shake and bake, right? So in the shake part, like we are doing vibration testing and shock testing to make sure that the mechanisms, the electronics, the all the uh, delicate optics, they're built to withstand this environment. On top of that, once everything's integrated into the rover, we also shake it again, right? So we, we go through all these layers of testing for the vibration environment. And the other half of it in the bake part of it, it's subjecting it to extreme temperature cycles, right? So Mars, it can get hot and it can get really cold. And so being able to understand how materials, um, how structures, how they withstand these types of extreme environments is also really important. Um, and so what we do is all of our boxes, again, they get tested um, at the subsystem level is what we refer to it as. Um, and then probably the most grueling test that I have ever been a part of at the rover level is called our surface thermal test. So we put the entire rover in this huge vacuum chamber and we subject it to the environments that it would if it was on the surface of Mars. And so it is the most um, flight-like test that we will put the rover on before we launch it. And it's a 24-7, three-week-long test that's staffed by, you know, folks like me. Um, and we're running tests 24-7 uh, to try and make sure we understand that the rover, how the rover is going to interact in these temperatures. And so... In addition to that, though, there's all kinds of other testing um, based off what you're building. So we do um, radiation testing. Uh, we'll do uh, testing for instruments that are installed on the robotic arm because we have a drill. And so they have to be able to withstand even the drill environment as well. So there's the, the cruise part of the mission, which is relatively benign compared to once you're on Mars. And once you're on Mars, aside from the landing environment, uh, which is generally enveloped in the, from the launch environment, and then the, the thermal environment, there's also like the dust environment. I'm, I'm not sure if you guys heard about it, but a few years ago, there was a huge dust storm that basically enveloped all of Mars. And so we needed to make sure when we designed those rovers that they could survive a giant dust storm like this. And so 
the components of the Perseverance rover also had to be subjected uh, to testing like that, or at least analysis. So it's really all of the work is done by imagining what is the worst case scenario and you prepare for the worst case scenario so that on launch day, um, you understand how well your hardware can survive. It's incredible. And then once it lands on Mars, I read it's equipped with 25 cameras and part of this mission, or maybe the, the main part of the mission is looking for evidence of that life maybe existed on Mars at some point in the past through studying microbiological elements in the rocks and things. Is that right? Yeah. So we have a couple of key goals um, for the Mars Perseverance mission. One is exactly like you're saying, seeking signs of past life. So we have all these science tools um, that will help us look for organics or evidence of organics um, in our rock samples and even just in how the geology is formed. Um, the second goal is to collect samples, which, you know, I wish this, there was a cooler way of saying this, but it's like this is the first part of a future sample return. We have never done this before. It's huge. It is probably one of the biggest goals of the Perseverance mission co- to collect samples so that a future mission could bring them back and we could study them further. Uh, the third goal is also to prepare for humans. And we're doing that in so many different ways. We have uh, technology demonstrations. Uh, we have an instrument called MOXIE, which is actually going to test out uh, effectively breathing in the Martian atmosphere and creating oxygen from that so that we could either use that for, you know, fuel for a, you know, for launching from Mars or, you know, for humans, right? And and there's other things that we're doing, understanding the weather, weather pattern for future astronauts. How do we need to design their suits given the conditions that the rover might see? And so with these goals, it's it's really to to try and take a huge leap uh, from the perspective of, you know, we've spent over 60 years studying Mars. Um, That's the length of time since the first mission observed uh, Mars. And now we're trying to say, okay, what is it going to take to bring those samples back and to eventually bring humans there? That's just wild. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, wait, is that like, Christina, really? Like, I even sometimes surprise myself. It's just like, it's so cool what humanity can do, right? When you put your brains together, right? Just to reflect how far we've come with from the perspective of exploration. It's fan- it's amazing. Well, and to go back to your, you know, when you said like having your dream job is not paradise every day, but the most grueling part of this mission has been like the reasons you would do it all over again. And I think it's just that, that desire to continuously learn and to always be that student of life. And yeah. you're in an environment in which you are learning from the things that you're doing, the, the, that your team is putting together and doing and learning from your mentors. I mean, it's just, it sounds like an amazing environment. It really does. Yeah. And oh, yeah. it, it seems very unique. <laughs> hey everybody, Sam McLean here from InPhase Audio, audio producer and editor for the We Get Real AF podcast. I'm so glad to be a part of this podcast, encouraging women and girls to step into emerging technologies and celebrating the accomplishments of those who do. Make sure to follow me on Instagram at McLean Sounds or check out my website, inphase.biz. 
Thanks for listening. I have a question about the pictures that y'all take. How do those get back to Earth and how quickly are they returned? Oh, yeah. So um, we have a bunch of ways of communicating with the rover through antennas and radios. So on Earth, we have the Deep Space Network, um, and that's in Gold, uh, Goldstone, Canberra, and Madrid. And there's these huge dishes. I don't know if you guys have ever seen Contact, because that's what I always think of, right? These huge dishes that their job is basically to communicate with every uh, spacecraft that's out there and to send them data and then to receive their data. And so when the rover is at Mars, right, um, it's communicating with orbiters that are orbiting Mars, uh, specifically MRO and Odyssey, so the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and the Odyssey Orbiter. And so the rover sends data to those orbiters, and then those orbiters basically play hot potato with the data over to the deep space network where it's received. And then operators like myself can basically download the images and, and look at them. And so we're sending data every, every single day. Actually, if you guys ever come to JPL, there's this amazing light fixture that basically shows you what it's doing, right? So you can imagine a bunch of lights going up and that's us sending commands and, you know, hey, how's it going, Percy? Like, how's the weather up there? And so we're sending information up and then at, then you can see with lights flowing down, Percy saying, yeah, I'm doing okay. Like, I, here's a cool image that I took, right? So we're constantly just talking with these rovers and orbiters, getting images back, understanding the new science that they're taking. It's its amazing when you think about it. 35 million miles away, right? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty far. That, that just boggles <laughs> my mind so that, that we can do that. seven minutes for the signal to go from Earth to Mars, right? So what that, that was the whole thing when uh, Curiosity landed. They called it the, you know, the seven minutes of terror, right? Because for seven minutes, you were waiting for that signal to come back to tell you that the rover had landed. And so that's just the distance that it takes for the for light to travel between Mars and Earth. And so if you go out even further, right, to Neptune, to Pluto, and one day we'll go to an exoplanet, right? You know, it, it just takes even longer. And so, but it's really amazing just to know that as we speak now, right, there are orbiters and curiosity are talking to us here on Earth. That's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, when we spoke initially, you talked about your team and you briefly spoke to them about, about your team earlier um, when you're talking about all the amazing things you're doing and the mentors that you're learning from. Can you talk about who all is on your team, like the diversity on your team? Um, I, I, if I recall correctly, you're saying like it's a team of really badass women. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah so one of the things that surprised me as soon as I joined Mars 2020, this was five years ago, is how many woman, women I saw in technical leadership positions. As uh, an actual worker bee, when you see this badass woman, right, who's the project systems engineer, she's in charge of the systems engineering on this entire rover, it's just like, wow. And she's probably one of the few people at JPL who have worked on all of our rover missions, right? She's just an awesome powerhouse. And then below her, you have an army of technical leads 
that are, you know, what my lead, uh, her name is Diana Trujillo. She's from Colombia, right? So my boss is a Latina who's a powerhouse, right? And, you know, there's just so many women. And one of the things that I found incredibly interesting as an observer and being in the room with them is that, you know, women bring the communication to the table. They, you know, it's amazing the collaborative environment that can happen when you have a diverse room, right? And so one of the things that I saw they brought to the table, they had the know-how, right? They had the chops to say, yeah, no, that's wrong, or this is how we should do it. But they were able to do it in a way that was collaborative and, and that brought everyone to the table. And I thought that was probably the most amazing thing that I, I, I directly saw the impact of what happens when you have women in technical leadership positions. I love hearing that because that is so key. And especially when so much is at stake, you've got to be sure that you hear every opinion and every and examine a problem from every possible angle yeah. so that you're not missing something. Yeah. I find it curious that at the beginning of our conversation, you said that you had this, um, this spot, you know, in college where you were having some difficulty and potentially seeing people that didn't look like you yeah. in the spaces. And now you're working on a, an amazing team that's just women, like amazing women working together yeah. to, to bring this mission to fruition. So I just, I think that's so a full circle for you. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. And it kind of like, it just makes me realize how important it is for women to, to give back and, and to really say, look, like, d don't quit now, right? Like, look, mm -hmm. there's all these women who are doing really cool things. Like, we need you too, right? And yes, and, and that's exactly. really what, like, pumps it up. And that's what makes it even more diverse. Because I feel one of the things that, you know, as a woman, it's not just bringing more women to the table. It's bringing people who just have different you know, upbringings, who have different cultures, who have, you know, different ways of living. And that just enriches the solution space when it comes to engineering. And it would be a shame to limit that solution space. And so it's really having people who have the foresight to to bring everyone to the table. So the research that we're going to do and the materials that we're going to bring back from Mars what are some of the use cases or the applications that you see for that information here on Earth? I mean, are there ways that that will help us understand our own planet better or environmental change or gravity? I don't know. What are the ways that it will help educate us for life here on Earth? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Um, so one that I actually just recently learned about is one of our instruments, uh, Sherlock, is a uh, has what we call a calibration target. So a lot of science instruments bring calibration targets so that when they're comparing something that they find on Mars, they have a known thing that they can compare it to for calibration purposes. And so the Sherlock instrument is actually bringing a piece, pieces of a spacesuit material to see how that spacesuit material behaves over time on Mars, right? And so it's really like, what are... What are the different applications of spacesuit material? We find them, you know, every day here, right? When it comes to like firefighter suits or just other applications of these fabrics. And here we're testing them against even more extreme environments. Um, I think one of the things that I have learned to appreciate the most about Mars, um, and it took a 
geology trip um, to the Mojave to really understand it um, is that Mars teaches us about what is happening on Earth. It, it is another, you know, Earth-like planet. It's similar size, right? Relatively nearby. And it's like, how did it get to that point, right? And the only way to understand that is to explore and to compare it against Earth. So a lot of the times our geologists and astrobiologists are always asking themselves the question, you know, if I was here on Earth and I needed to go find life or I needed, I wanted to see signs of water, what are the different things that I would observe in the geology, um, in the deltas, in the terrain and and you compare that to Mars and vice versa. And so understanding what happened to Mars's, you know, atmosphere or its terrain also helps us understand the earth. Um, the other thing that I've actually been geeking out recently, I used to hate programming. I used to hate code because it, it, it just didn't seem very interesting. And then once I got to college, I realized how powerful it is. And so one of the things that I have grown to appreciate the most about, you know, Mars 2020 and just missions in general is they are getting more and more autonomous, right? We're building more complex and autonomous systems, just like we're doing here on earth, right? We're thinking about doing self-driving cars or self-piloting, you know, Uber flights and just, you know, how do we make data, uh, easier so that, you know, when we go to the doctor, our doctor, you know, has even more resources. And so the software on the rover is actually incredibly complex, right? Here you have a rover that autonomously knows how much power it has and decides if it needs to do more science and if it can do more science. And so one of the things that I've thought about recently is that as we build more robotic and autonomous structures for space exploration, that software, those ideas in architecting complex autonomous structures can be applied to the technology that we need here on Earth as well. I've, I'm curious with the, because we keep talking about this rover in my head, I have this like image of the rover on Mars. Um, how How is it powered? How does it continue to go? Is there like a little charging dock that's attached to it that lands with it and it like goes back like a, a Roomba and knows that it needs to charge? That would be really cool. <laughs> like, I don't even know. How does it, how, yeah, how does it uh, charge itself? Yeah, so the rover has um, what we call an MMRTG. It's basically a, a nuclear power source that provides heat, right? So it's, it's using the heat from this stable energy source to power itself. And one of the things that's really cool about it is like when you talk about like a charging port is that our earlier rovers were solar powered, right? So when we would have these dust storms, it was Mm -hmm. really hard to do science 24 seven because we had to power down, we had to manage our power resources, but the rover can do science 24 seven, it could do science at night because it always has a power source. And so it's one of the technologies that has definitely enabled us to be more efficient and to get more science. And so uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. Hmm. When do you, um, and this may already be a known thing, but I don't know it. So I'm going to ask when will humans be able to land on Mars and, and actually go like a human expedition yeah, that's that's that is the million dollar question or billion dollar question. I feel <laughs> it's 
It's so interesting. I really think that, you know, maybe in the 30s and 40s, uh, we'll eventually be able to send, you know, a crewed mission. Um, One of the things that I have learned to recognize is the complexity of sending, you know, these warm, squishy things is what I call them uh, to another planet, right? And bringing them back. And, you know, it's, you want to make sure you understand as many variables as you can before you send, you know, people's loved ones over to and and keep them safe. And so I really think, you know, with, you know, the Artemis mission, uh, which is us going back to the moon, also talking about like understanding asteroid missions, it's and the rover itself, with all of this new information, like we really are now in the proving ground for what do we need now to bring um, astronauts to Mars in the future? So I am with you. I am waiting for the day. I am taking down because I just can't wait to see that first crewed mission to Mars and how amazing that would be. Well, you know, I'm listening to you, to, to you describe how harsh the conditions are and, and dust storms and just all of the hostile environment there. And it seems like uh, a tougher ask than landing on the moon. I read the most uh, fantastic book this weekend. It's called uh, To Be Taught If Fortunate by Becky Chambers. And it talks about a crude exoplanet mission and like what they go through. And at the end of the day, it's just like you do this for science. You do this because you are an explorer, because you are the representative of humanity, like pushing the bounds. And I I would have so much respect for anyone who goes to Mars because that I I would do it myself if I could. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a question. So um, are we officially three weeks out? Yes. Yeah, so we okay. our launch window opens on July 17th. So now we're in the final stretch of getting the the rover buttoned up, as we call it, and ready to put on the on the rocket. So at this point in time, the rover is fully stowed, right? So everything's put away. It's powered down. It's installed in its um, descent stage, which I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the infamous sky crane, which is the, the system that basically from the atmosphere of Mars brings the rover back down to the surface. And so the descent stage is, is what we call it. And so the rover is integrated with that. And it's now in the process of getting integrated into the cruise stage, which is like this little egg-like shell that actually carries the rover from Earth all the way to Mars. So we're kind of like there, right? I actually uh, heard on the news the other day that the booster, the rocket booster uh, that the rover is going to use is is there at Cape Canaveral. So like now it's really the, the putting it together. And the team uh, that I work with we're in the process of doing dress rehearsals for launch. So we go through all these nominal and off nominal scenarios to prepare for, for launch day, um, cruise day, and then eventually for surface. And so we call these operational readiness tests. So that's really what the team is focused on at this point as the, the team, the Atlo team puts the rover together to get it ready for their launch vehicle. So I've got to ask, since this is a rover going up and obviously we're not sending humans up yet, are there any like personal touches that you guys add to the rover, whether it be 
I don't know, writing or painting or doing something to where there's like a piece of each of you, aside from obviously all your brain (laughs) power, um, like, is there anything fun that you guys do that it's like, yep, my little whatever's up in space, aside from like your little rover? (laughs) I think it's so funny because like, I would be the first person to like go and take a Sharpie and sign my name on the rover. (laughs) Um, But actually, one of the things that I do appreciate is I'm sure like, you know, underneath the paint, right? you know, the teams that, you know, built the instruments or, you know, something probably have sketched their initials. I know right now we're carrying a microchip that has the names of so like millions of individuals uh, who signed up to get their name on on and send it to Mars, which is kind of cool. Um, but really, you know, I think we all recognize that this is a team effort, right? And it's not, you know, the output of the individual, it's the output of the collective. And so, you know, because of that, we really don't have like, you know, our initials everywhere. Um, I will say, though, that the Mars uh, Curiosity rover uh, did have secretly embedded on its wheels uh, in Morse code, the letters JPL, uh, which was very very, controversial. (laughs) Typical fact. Graffiti. We get to Mars and I see maybe what other Easter eggs are planted. (laughs) I love that. I love it. I'm, I'm curious about the privatization of space programs and you know, obviously NASA is doing so much research, but you have other groups like SpaceX and Elon Musk uh, looking at doing privatized space programs. What do you see the role for those programs being, if any? I really see it as a partnership. Um, I, I feel that, you know, when you have, you know, the history and the experience of NASA coupled with, you know, these upcoming private companies that are also pushing the bounds, right? If you get a a great relationship together, you know, we could really move space exploration forward. And, you know, one of the things that I do believe in is that, you know, competition and, you know, uh, different techniques and methods for solving a problem is incredibly important for engineering. And, And so when I look at companies like Blue Origin and SpaceX, right? I really see those companies as, you know, also pushing the boundary and, you know, in a different method than NASA's pushing the boundary. And then together, you know, we can really make a significant progress. Are you able to continue working on this mission to till its end to, to find all of the data and research everything that's come back? Or does that go to a different group? Oh, yeah. So that's the awesome thing about these missions is you can stay on as long as you want. And so um, now after launch, I will be focusing 100% on operations. And operations is the phase of the team that, you know, will orchestrate the activities and, and look at the data that we get once we land. And so my plan is to do, and I say plan because who knows, you know, it's, it's always exciting to see how, what uh, things come up. But I am going to be coordinating at minimum our cruise activities for uh, one of my science instruments, and I'll be leading uh, the surface operations activities for the science instrument. So it's basically like, what what do I need to do to command my instrument, to talk to it, um, working with the scientists to make sure that we do the activities that they need um, in order to get the right science. And, you know, the best part of everything is troubleshooting when things don't go according to plan. And so that'll be really like the first 
40 souls is what we call it, which is like a Mars day. Um, and then after that, we really, you know, let the rover, give the rover to the scientists and say, all right, guys, like we've commissioned it. We, everything's working well. Where to next, right? What's the plan? And so uh, I'm really excited for that part of the mission. What is Percy's life expectancy um, for like how long she'll be able to continue to send data and do her work? So it, the rover is uh, designed for 1.5 uh, Mars years. Um, and so it's, it's basically roughly double that of Earth. And so we also always design our systems with margin. So as an example, um, Mars um, uh, Opportunity and Spirit, right, they were designed for 90 souls, so 90 Martian days. Opportunity lasted well over 14 years, right? So, you know, we will use these rovers until, you know, they it's time for them to, to go to sleep permanently. Um, but the prime mission is a few years. I think a lot of young women will be listening to this episode um, to get your input or just whatever advice you would have to other young girls out there who are in college or maybe in high school and thinking, this sounds so cool and so amazing, but I don't know if I have the the chops for it. What would you say to them, to, to that young woman who's on the fence confidence wise? Check the self-doubt and just do it. Like you, you are amazing. You are powerful. Um, failure makes you stronger. So just, just do it. Um, I, I often think about, you know, the different things that I would tell myself, uh, you know, reflecting, you know, say 10, 15 years ago. And one of the things I've learned is that it's it's so important uh, to be patient with yourself and to believe in yourself. So um, if you want to do it, just try it. I love that because I think so often women think, maybe people in general think, I have to be a rock star the whole way. And if I stumble and fall, then that's what the information that really matters in making yeah. my future decision. And that's not true. So I just love hearing somebody like you who is really transparent and open and says, I'm a rock star, but I'm a rock star who, who had my moments of doubt yeah. and moments of struggle. Absolutely. And being patient with yourself is so key as well. I think that so many, I think this is such a female thing of like a timeline. I know that that was like yeah. a huge thing for me of like, okay, I have goals. And again, goals are awesome to have, but like there was like a time stamp for each goal and like life happens and yeah. you, life's pace and you know being patient with yourself and knowing that things will happen when they're meant to happen I think is a very big lesson as well so Christina we end our interviews with what we call our lightning round and these are just some fun questions um, to get to know you better and I will start by asking you to finish this sentence women are powerful yeah. <laughs> Indeed. All right. What are three pieces of advice you'd give your younger self, which you've already given a piece of that, but I'll let you elaborate on um, two other pieces. Yeah. So, okay. Definitely be patient with yourself. As I mentioned, um, one of the things that I'm learning and I'm really appreciating lately is be vulnerable. Um, mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of the times as women, we create these really hard shells so that people can see that we're tough and that, you know, we can take it, we can be one of the boys. But being vulnerable is such an important skill set because it makes you a better leader. 
It makes you a better team player and it makes you a better person. And, and so embrace your vulnerability. Um, absolutely. Um, and the third piece of advice, um, and it kind of goes with being patient, but it's enjoy the process over the end goal. I spent the last 10 years, you know, really focused on the end goal. And I didn't necessarily appreciate the process as much as I could have. And, you know, enjoying the process, enjoying the late nights, enjoying, you know, you spending time on your craft is so important because it humbles you and it just makes you appreciate how far you've come. Those are awesome. Love Mm -hmm. every one of those. (laughs) Absolutely. What is your current favorite application of tech for good? Ooh, okay. So given, you know, the COVID-19 situation that we're in, I have loved the application of 3D printing. And so I I just see so many people who have 3D printers, including, you know, my husband and myself. It's like, oh, let's figure out how to 3D print a mask, right? And can we get them donated? Like, what can we do? Um, I know JPL recently 3D printed a ventilator as well. And so it's like, People with the technology that they have access to want to help in the greater good. And so I really feel 3D printing, you know, is kind of being a rock star right now. Mm-hmm. What issue do you most hope technology will help resolve in the future? Ooh, this one's tough because, you know, right away, my gut is climate change, right? It's such an important issue Um, We need to leave the earth in a condition so that it can be enjoyed for generations to come um, and so that, you know, kids can see polar bears and, you know, penguins and that sort of thing. Um, The other thing where I'm kind of tied with is, you know, access to education. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how I felt that, you know, reading and learning like that's really what helped create the foundation that I have today. And, you know, it's a reality that many people, including, you know, children and even adults don't have access to educational resources. And so I really believe that, you know, technology can help in both of these and, you know, help create a better future for everyone and a more equitable future. What inspires you? Ooh, um, I'd have to say, you know, exploration or nature. It's it's kind of just, you know, just looking outside and like right now I'm outside a window and I'm looking at a tree and it's just how amazing is it that over time, right, evolution and, you know, just the the way things ended up being is we have trees, right? And how beautiful they are. And the, so far it's the only place we can have, we found trees and, you know, just that curiosity and wonder and just wanting to answer the question of why I have to say that's what inspires me the most. Mm-hmm. Mm. What do you want to learn more about? Ooh, so I want to be better at writing Python code. Uh, that's kind of my my pet project right now. But I'd also love to learn a lot about exoplanets. And so I know JPL and other NASA centers have a lot of uh, um, missions studying exoplanets, so planets that don't necessarily uh, orbit our uh, sun. And I'd just love to learn more about, you know, how do we find exoplanets? You know, what are some of the exoplanets that look really promising for future exploration? You know, I, I've been reading a lot of sci-fi and watching, you know, Interstellar too many times. And so I'm, I'm really looking forward to learning a little bit more about that. 
Describe the future in one word. Ours. Mm, love it. Like <laughs> Ownership. <laughs> All right. Fill in the blank. Blank like a girl. Oh, this one's easy. Engineer like a girl. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much, Christina, for taking the time with us today. Um, again, I just think what you're doing is like the coolest job ever. And um, I do too. I, 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 when, when you bounced off for a quick second earlier, I just told you, I'm like, I just love the joy in her voice because when you speak, like you can tell, like you're just really enamored with what you do and as challenging as it is every day, like it still shows and it comes through. So um, thank you for that. No, I love yeah. it. And, and thanks for inviting me I I have fun like you know just talking about space with other women and you know thinking about how we can make a better future and you know actually you know talking about this gets me pumped so it's like I'm ready to go crank out three hours of work right now because I'm excited <laughs> about it I'm sure NASA appreciates that <laughs> but before you do that can you tell our listeners how they can find you um, on social media and find out more about the the Mars rover perseverance as well on, yeah. on the internet so um, I am pretty active on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is Estrellas y Café, stars and coffee, my favorite things. Um, and we also uh, kicked off about a few months ago the Perseverance Twitter handle. Um, and I need to double check what it is. But uh, basically, you can find out all about the current events leading up to launch. We're posting photos, videos, interviews with a bunch of engineers like myself. And, you know, you could find out more about uh, Percy and what's Percy going to be doing? Yay! Well, fantastic. Yeah, you, your team, and Percy up in in space. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of We Get Real AF. We're excited to bring you the voices of amazing women and girls who are shaping the future for good. Please help us spread the WeGraph mission of supporting women and girls in emerging tech and science. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WeGetRealAF. And visit our website at www.WeGetRealAF.com. Don't forget to like, comment, and to subscribe to the podcast. We also want to give a big shout out and thanks to Sam McLean for providing sound production for the show. You can find Sam on Instagram at McLean Sounds, that's M-C-L-E-A-N-S-O-U-N-D-S, and to our voiceover artist, Veronica Horta, for her show introduction. You can find Veronica on LinkedIn by searching for Veronica Horta, H-O-R-T-A. We'll meet you back here next time for another great conversation about high tech with cool women.